Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm vice president uh, here at Cato and publisher. And I would heartily like to thank you for uh, coming here today. Uh, for our viewers online and uh, being broadcast by C-SPAN, uh, you may, may not know, the, unexpectedly, the Washington uh, subway system, a metro, was closed today. So the people that have joined us here have made a great effort to hear something about this book, Lessons in Censorship, How Schools and Courts Subvert Students' First Amendment Rights, which is the topic of our book forum today. Um, there's another thing that can be said about today, and we sort of chose today for this uh, particular book and, and to have Catherine Ross here uh, at Cato. And the reason is, this is the 265th birthday of a man named James Madison. As it happens, James Madison actually wrote the First Amendment uh, because he wrote the first 10 amendments that were introduced into Congress. Uh, and was a, uh, beyond that, more than just the uh, author of them or the person who wrote them, he was also a, a strong defender and believed very heartily in them. I should say also I learned today that in part of that, part of Madison's birthday being, uh, means that the First Amendment Center, uh, a valuable inf uh, institute here in Washington, has uh, designated his birthday National Freedom of Information Day, which is... Uh, we are celebrating here today along with the publication of this book. I can't help, however, but refer to what I thought was an interesting and useful uh, comment from Madison on, on this very topic, the First Amendment freedoms and First Amendment freedom of speech. Madison wrote, quote, a popular government without popular, informa popular information or the means of inquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy or perhaps both. Knowledge will forever govern ignorance, and a people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power which knowledge gives." Unquote. And we will continue in this faith as we go down through the history of the United States, that knowledge will govern ignorance, and that the First Amendment is an essential means, as Catherine Ross just said in the Green Room, to making the whole uh, system work. Uh, Madison, interestingly, the First Amendment Center designated him as a uh, list of first uh, person to go in the Freedom of Information uh, Act Hall of Fame, which is interesting. He's uh, kind of Hank Aaron, I guess, of uh, Freedom of Information. That said, I hope we have a person here today, our author, who is since down the line will be a candidate for being in the Freedom of Information Act Hall of Fame. Catherine J. Ross, uh, the author of Lessons in Censorship, is a law professor at George Washington University and during the current academic year is a visiting scholar at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Uh, this book, Lessons in Censorship, was named 2015's best book by Concurring Opinions, First Amendment News. Professor Ross specializes in constitutional law with a particular emphasis, as you might guess, in the First Amendment, but also in family law and legal and policy issues concerning children. She has published and lectured widely, has been interviewed on many television and radio news shows, and has testified before Congress. This is not, however, a first appearance in a Cato forum. She was a commentator uh, in January on a, a, a 
panel we had, and she was a participant in a Cato Unbound conversation, which I recommend to everyone here, uh, both in general and in particular a month or two ago. You can find it at cato.org. Uh, let me also say that while I am discussing that, that if you are following us today on Twitter, please use the hashtag CatoEvents. On Twitter, the hashtag CatoEvents. Uh, Professor Ross has also been on the ABA, the American Bar Association's Steering Committee on Unmet Legal Needs of Children, uh, and presented a report in 1993 on America's Children at Risk to the White House. She has served in many ways at the highest levels on the American Bar Association and on the editorial boards of the Family Courts Review and Family Law Quarterly. Uh, she's a distinguished advocate of the First Amendment, uh, and we are happy to welcome her here today to the Cato Institute and to talk about her book, Lessons in Censorship. Catherine? Thank you so much, John, for that generous introduction. And thank you to all of you for braving the streets of Washington today and the sunniest equivalent of a snow day we have ever seen. Um, so I'm going to begin by just reading the opening passage from my book. You lose all constitutional rights once you enter a school building, a school official in Suffolk County, New York, proclaimed in the spring of 2012. You're not allowed to do this, she asserted, as she confiscated flyers from an indignant student who was protesting her friend's five-day suspension. Layering censorship upon censorship, the episode had a surreal quality. The student whose plight prompted the pamphlets had been punished for voicing her opposition to bullying, but in a way the school deemed inappropriate. The seizure was as clueless as it was surreal because the First Amendment protects speech rights of public school students in grades K through 12. And yet schools all over the country regularly censor constitutionally protected speech by children and judges often let them get away with it. Now, when I use the word censorship throughout, I'm talking both about stopping speech before it happens and punishing it afterwards. Schools silence and punish students who express their own opinions on every side of important issues we adults are debating, including national and local politics, the rights of LGBT persons, guns, abortion, and more. They've suspended a six-year-old who called a classmate a poo-poo head. They stopped one elementary school girl from praying before eating her own lunch and another from distributing a homemade flyer that began, Hi, my name is MB, in which she shared her personal experience that finding Christ was like finding a lost dog. In the upper grades, schools suspended two boys who wore political t-shirts, one praising the Marines. Oh, I'm sorry, John, is this... Uh, wait, mechanical problem here. Oh. Is this not on? Oh. Maybe I have to do it up here. Okay. Yeah, I think it's. Ah. Right. We should have practiced. I thought this was all set up. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I'm just trying to figure out. 
can we pause here? I'm so sorry. Um, anger? No. Oh, this is awful. I have a beautiful T-shirt to show you. Ah, uh, okay. So one was praising the Marines and their gun. And another boy was criticizing President George W. Bush as a substance-abusing, draft-dodging chicken hawk. And schools are increasingly asserting the authority to punish students for what they say off campus on their own time, a subject that I'll return to at the end of my comments. The Constitution protects all of this expression, as well as speech that adults might regard as worthless. But the Constitution protects worthless as well as worthwhile speech. And when we talk about students, we are also often talking about adolescent humor that's simply beyond adult comprehension. <laughs> students are especially likely to get in trouble for speaking up if somebody else's parent finds their speech controversial, which really means they say it's offensive because I disagree with it. But controversial and disagreeable speech is exactly what the speech clause is designed to protect. The PowerPoint's just disappeared entirely, but I, okay. Um, thank you. Students are especially, I'm sorry, the, the hard, I should never use PowerPoints. Okay. <laughs> the heart of the problem is that too many principals and school board members don't know or don't understand the limits the Constitution places on their ability to control what students say, while others simply disregard the law because they don't like it. As I worked on this book, almost everybody I talked to informally said, I have a censorship story, either from their own days in school or from their children. And longtime teachers incredulously told me that they had no idea that students had First Amendment rights, and they asked where I had come up with such a creative notion. So in proceeding, I have to begin by giving you a whirlwind tour of First Amendment doctrine as it applies to students. And then I'll turn to some stories that capture some of the particular contemporary dilemmas. The speech clause of the First Amendment is very concise. It says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. As interpreted, this means that the government and anyone acting on behalf of the government may not silence speech because of its content or viewpoint. School districts and everyone who works for them, from principals to teachers to school bus drivers, are the government when we talk about students' freedom to speak. My research and my comments today are limited to public schools because the First Amendment doesn't apply to independent schools, whether secular or religious. They're not the government. The Supreme Court first took up the issue of student speech rights in 1943 in one of the earliest cases in which it actually upheld the speech rights of any individual. Barnett versus West Virginia involved elementary school students. They were Jehovah's Witnesses who were at risk of expulsion and being sent to a juvenile reformatory because they refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance on the ground that it offended their religion. But it was not uh, litigated or interpreted as a religion case. The consequences today 
of speaking up and being punished can also be dire. Many students enter the school to prison pipeline as a result of being suspended, expelled, or sent to an alternative school for troubled students after they engage in protected speech. So just like the Jehovah's Witnesses in 1943, the consequences are stark. Barnett held that people, including young students, could not be forced to say what was not in their minds, a concept we today called the rule against compelled speech. The court emphasized the constitutional limits on the state's coercive powers, whether exercised by, quote, village tyrants or by the federal government. And it underscored that the First Amendment was designed to protect nonconformists of all stripes. The court particularly focused on schools because the case involved two elementary school girls. It said, because schools are educating the young for citizenship, they must scrupulously protect individual rights if we're not to strangle the free mind at its source and to teach youth to discount important principles of government as mere platitudes. Decades later, the court returned to student speech and began to carve out a special way of assessing claims that schools had illegally censored student expression. The first and iconic Supreme Court case in modern times, and here I'm just listing the cases. I don't expect you to retain all of them, but so you don't wonder when I say the names. The, the, I, the first modern case is Tinker versus Des Moines, decided in 1969 at the height of the Vietnam War. And it held that schools had violated the First Amendment by suspending students who wore black armbands to school in order to protest the war. The court took into account all the things society expects schools to accomplish, especially the importance of educating young for citizenship. And it crafted a special test that gave schools more leeway to restrain speech than the government has in the world at large. It announced that schools could not censor student expression unless authorities had a reason to anticipate that the speech could lead to material disruption of the school's function or collide with the rights of others. And in short, I'll refer to this as the material disruption test. As the court became more conservative, under every new chief justice, it gradually carved out exceptions to the material disruption test in three later cases. These gave schools more and more power to censor student speech but did not extinguish student speech rights. Two of the exceptions gave the schools discretion to censor student expression that's lewd or speech that advocates the use of illegal substances, which you may recognize as the bong hits for Jesus case. The most important exception stems from Hazelwood versus Kalmeyer a 1988 decision that created a special category of speech the court labeled school-sponsored. If speech is school-sponsored, it it's treated as if the school is speaking and the student is not, even though the speech originates with the student in such places as high school papers or literary magazines, but also much further. To be school-sponsored, the speech must appear to bear the school's imprimatur, or in a Justice Alito's words, to be the school's own speech, so that a reasonable person would think the school had approved it. This reaches virtually all expression in student publications, performances, extracurricular activities, and more. 
stripping students of their voices. Schools try their best to avoid the material disruption standard because it's hard to satisfy. They claim that all cursing is lewd and therefore can be punished, even when students read aloud from classical literature or mutter to themselves thinking no one can hear them. Some schools have even begun to assert that what students say in the classroom and in written homework assignments handed in only to the teacher is school-sponsored expression, though no one in their right mind could think that the school had a chance to understand it and approve it before the students submitted it or uttered it. This approach severely limits the range of viewpoints in our classrooms, especially since teachers in many jurisdictions are not allowed to disagree with the text that the school board has selected, and there are many disputes about what viewpoints should be part of the official curriculum. I won't go into them, but think about disputes over how to teach such subjects as biology, including evolution, and courses on sex ed, and even American history and slavery. Let me briefly anticipate some common concerns about giving students too much freedom in school. Recognizing students' constitutional rights will not undermine education at all. There are two concerns. It's going to undermine education, or it's going to put people at risk of their safety. Regarding the first concern, education, Preserving the school's educational function is the essence of the material disruption test. So disruption does not have to be tolerated. As for the second, safety, schools may always clamp down on speech that's illegal outside of school, like true threats, a narrow constitutional standard, very hard to satisfy, but also harassment, libel, and so forth. And more important, even speech that's protected outside of school by the Constitution that threatens violence or serious disruption, but it does not rise to the level of a true threat under constitutional law, may always be silenced by a school before it causes problems while officials contain the speaker and investigate whether there is cause for concern. Safety comes first. So that's the taxonomy. The principal or other official has to first figure out what kind of speech this is. The student's own that's not lewd, not pro-drug, or school-sponsored, and then within that taxonomy uh, apply the correct test because each of these has a slight, slightly different formulation. I understand that it is really hard for teachers and principals in the spur of the moment, when they're worried, to try to understand and use a very complex set of standards. But they're also not adequately prepared to do that. Um, and so I provide a chart in the book, and this is the color version that can be ordered and placed in a principal's office, like the Heimlich Maneuver poster. What do I do now? We have a speech incident. OK, <laughs> this is going to remind me. If it's the student's own speech, I have to really slow down, and I can't silence it unless there's a threat of material disruption. Then I have to understand something about what this means. This isn't complete legal advice. If it's school-sponsored, I need to slow down. I can censor it, but only if I have a legitimate pedagogical reason. And the fact that someone finds it offensive or it might be controversial is not a legitimate reason under the First Amendment. But if it's lewd, pro-drug, or inciting violence, or inflammatory in some way, 
um, or defamatory, um, I can censor and punish it at my discretion. So now, how does this all work? Most of the speech that's at the core of contemporary debates sexting, texting, online speech, bullying, and racist expression, all falls in the category of what I call pure student speech. It's governed by the material disruption test. Let me begin with creative artists who commonly get in trouble at school for fictional and graphic works. This is a poster that a high school senior named Sarah Bowman, who had never been in trouble, she was a good student, made during her lunch hour and posted in the corridor. Uh, about 15 minutes later, before any students had seen it, they were on the cafeteria, the janitor saw it and got really upset and took Sarah and the poster to the principal's office. It says, and I'll just capture it, who killed my dog? He was my best friend. Did you kill my dog? Did you kill my dog? If you don't tell me who killed my dog, I'll kill you. She had taken a course during the summer that taught her about conceptual art designed to capture deranged fictional people. And in the principal's office, she explained this. Principal believed her, but he still said, I have to suspend you for five days. Subsequently, the school board got involved. And the school board decided that she should be suspended for 81.5 days the rest of her senior year, and that she could not return to school unless a psychologist examined her and confirmed that she was mentally fit to be in school. She sued, and the court easily held that her rights had been violated, and she was able to return to school and complete her senior year. They said once the principal interviewed her and understood what was going on, there was simply no reason to anticipate disruption, especially because even if other students might have been upset, had they seen the poster, nobody saw it. So there was no cause for concern at all. In a similar case involving a work of fiction, uh, written fiction, uh, an appellate judge rebuked his fellow appellate panelists for allowing the school to punish the writer. He said, after today, students will have to hide their artwork. They've lost their speech rights. If someone finds their art disturbing, they can be punished. School officials may now, he said, subordinate students' freedom of expression to a policy of making high schools cozy places, like daycare centers, where no one may be made to feel uncomfortable by the knowledge that others have dark thoughts and all the art is of hearts and smiley faces. So if you're wondering about the connection between my book, which stops senior year of high school, and some of what's been going on in today's college campuses about by students who think that their comfort level is more important than the expressive rights of their peers, uh, this is part of a connection that I see, though I have not written about it, but it's part of the Cato Unbound discussion that John mentioned earlier. Um, and this brings us to disparaging speech addressed to groups or individuals. Many schools have speech codes. Those are simply school rules that prohibit students from disparaging people based on 
categories like race, ethnicity, sexual identity, and some go much further, talking also about physical appearance, like short people like me, um, or even something much harder to measure, values. Students have even been prevented from expressing views that undermine respect for a group, even though they weren't actively aiming their comments at the group or meaning to be disparaging. And I open by saying that schools censor both sides of a lot of debates, and many, many schools have wrongly prevented students from forming chapters of the Gay-Straight Alliance or similar groups, or from wearing t-shirts in which students proclaim their own sexual identity. But here's the flip side in this story. Roman Catholic Daniel Glowacki resisted a lesson in tolerance on Spirit Day, a national day of recognition for LGBT teens who committed suicide. He told his teacher, I don't accept gays, it's against my religion. And the teacher told him to leave the room. There was no risk of disruption or only of competing ideas. A federal judge later commented that the teacher had modeled oppression and intolerance of student opinion. Other students agreed because when Daniel Glowacki left the room, they asked, why doesn't he have free speech? The legal question is whether the Constitution permits students, I'm sorry, permits schools to regulate hurtful speech addressed to groups or individuals, in school or out of school. And the answer is the Constitution does not permit that. The US is very unusual. Justice Kagan, while she was still a law professor, discussed university hate speech codes and concluded that even an exceedingly narrow speech code aimed at discriminatory harassment cannot survive constitutional scrutiny in the United States. And Justice Alito, too, while he was on the Third Circuit, pointed out there's no right to be protected from hurtful words. Free speech principles simply conflict with efforts to reduce the harm that disparaging speech can cause. So this is the crowning paradox. Under our Constitution, a liberal secular democracy that strives to inculcate tolerance in our citizens and, more importantly, perhaps, a culture of mutual respect rather than simply tolerating each other, must tolerate the expression of intolerance. That means that the state can't use its coercive powers to punish speech that offends that goal. But the speech clause doesn't leave educators without any recourse. Schools can teach empathy. They can encourage peers to step up to support each other when someone is targeted with a hurtful slur or stereotype. And schools can modern, model constructive ways of disagreeing. Ideally, I would urge that respect for student speech rights provides a training ground for exercising rights responsibly for responding to hurtful speech with more and better speech, as the First Amendment generally uh, requires and looks for, and for learning how to have substantive conflicts about real issues without um, going too far and cutting off conversation, what I call learning liberty by living it. So I'm going to close with a third example which is the growing number of incidents in which schools reach out, claim they can punish what students have said off campus, usually online, um, 
and off-school property. Schools increasingly claim the power to track and punish what students say 24-7. Some school districts have even hired retired law enforcement officers to keep track of their students' online communication from their own computers from their homes. Now remember that the whole rationale for giving schools more power to restrict speech than the government has in the world at large is the special environment and purpose of the public schools on campus. But schools say they can violate speech that is fully protected by the Constitution outside of school if it violates the school's rules of decorum. And they say if we do that, one of the school speech standard applies, not the normal strict scrutiny First Amendment test. Unfortunately, the schools didn't come up with this idea on their own because agencies of the federal government and many state statutes put this responsibility on schools in areas such as bullying. The law is unsettled, and it's likely to remain so because the Supreme Court just last week denied certiorari in a case called Bell versus Itawamba County School District in which all 16 judges on the Fifth Circuit sitting in bank to review a panel decision uh, went further than any other appellate court in allowing schools to discipline a student for off-campus speech. And this was a senior, also with a good disciplinary record, as is true in many of these cases, African-American student who wrote and recorded a rap song and posted it on YouTube in which he accused two of the coaches at the school of sexually harassing four girls who had talked to him about the problem. And no one ever argued in court or even asserted outside of court that this was not true. No one said, including the, the coaches, that this had never happened. But the school said this is harassment of school personnel, which the code doesn't allow. Now, these were gangster rap lyrics. They used the fictional conventions and the figurative violence that is always found in rap songs, as Killer Mike uh, indicated in a brief to the Supreme Court, urging them to grant cert, and the um, cert petition, uh, I'm sorry, the, the brief um, on the cert petition informs the court in case they might not know that Killer Mike himself has not actually ever killed anyone. Um, okay, so this leaves the law very different in different parts of the country about off-campus speech, meaning if it, a lot depends if you live in Texas or Mississippi or if you live in Washington, D.C. or Boston. Um, but it is well known from reading these cases, or very clear from these cases, that criticisms of school staff members are a very likely kind of speech to get a student in trouble. Schools don't like that. They reach out and they do serious punishments. Taylor Bell was sent to an alternative school for troubled kids, even though it was his first offense. Um, and similar things have happened to students who have posted so-called satirical adolescent humor, fake MySpace pages about their school principals, making fun of school administrators, complaining about a mean staff member or bad teachers like, I hate Ms. Phelps. But freedom of speech exists 
to protect dissidents, including those who criticize authorities and power. That is a core principle of democracy and one that should be honored in our school systems. The state's reach into the child's home in these cases also creates an express conflict between what educators think and parental liberty interests in deciding how to raise their children and what it's acceptable for their children to say and do and post from the home. Um, parents often punish the students um, in these cases, not just the off-campus speech cases, but the on-campus speech cases if their speech was rude or crude, but they sue the school to get the coercive discipline of the state off their child's permanent record because that can have a profound impact on the child's life. And if I have time, I'll tell you one more story. Thank you. It's a great story. Uh, my last example. Uh, this was an on-campus inquisition into a private online conversation between two middle school students from their homes in rural Minnewaska, Minnesota. The conversation had something to do with sex. We never learned its actual content. It was conducted on the internet, off school grounds, and outside school hours. When school officials learned about it from the family of the boy who initiated the conversation, they went after the girl who responded to his invitation to talk about sex. And they pulled her out of class and opened her laptop and demanded her IDs and passwords for all her accounts. They didn't call her mother. They interrogated her with the police present. They opened all her accounts. She was sobbing, and uh, they found a Facebook sex quiz, which she said, I thought it was fun and funny, and they condemned her for doing this online quiz as well as for her personal correspondence. It was a warrantless search without any grounds at all, and um, when the mother filed a lawsuit saying they had violated her daughter's First and Fourth Amendment rights, even though they had not actually punished her, uh, it became clear where the judge was going, and the case settled for $70,000. Uh, we've learned since this episode from the Supreme Court that personal computers and phones hold everything that is in a person's mind. That was not as clear at the time, but it is clear now. These intrusions into off-campus expression that the First Amendment protects teach young people the opposite lesson of the lesson Justice Jackson in Barnett said we should be teaching. They teach students to dismiss as meaningless the rights we tell them they have. They teach young people that there's no place to hide from an authoritarian government whose officials are immune from criticism undermining every core principle of our liberal democratic state. And I look forward to the responses and to the questions. Uh, Professor Ross's examples from high school recall to me for the first time in many years that I once got dragged into the principal's office for, as I recall, talking inappropriately during the reading of the Lord's Prayer. Now, given that the, at that point the school it was a public school and the school officials were involved in violating another part of the First Amendment, 
Uh, in retrospect, it was my finest hour, but it, <laughs> it didn't really seem like that at the time. So, um, Our first commentator will be Sigal Bin Parath, who has traveled from Philadelphia today to be with us uh, for this book forum, and we thank her for that. Uh, Dr. Bin Parath received her doctorate in political philosophy from Tel Aviv University. Uh, she was awarded two successive uh, Tel Aviv University President's postdoctoral grants there. In 2001 to 2004, she was a postdoctoral research associate at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. While in Israel, she served on a joint Palestinian-Israeli committee sponsored by the Perez Peace Center, working toward educational reform. Dr. Ben Porath was a member of the Young Scholars Forum at the Rabin Center for the Study of Israel, participated in the Women Faculty Forum at Tel Aviv University, and established the Israeli Association for Post-Secondary Education for Students with Learning Disabilities. Her research focuses on citizenship education, normative aspects of educational and social policy, and social effects of war. Her areas of expertise include philosophy of education and political philosophy. Her books include Citizenship Under Fire, Democratic Education in Times of Conflict in 2006, and Tough Choices, Structured Paternalism and the Landscape of Choice, both of which appeared with Princeton University Press. Dr. Ben Poref, welcome to the Cato Institute for your first appearance. Thank you, John and Catherine, and uh, thank you for the invitation uh, for my first appearance at Cato and for the opportunity to discuss this important book. I've been thinking and studying civic education for uh, quite a while right uh, up until now, and I'd mention that two other things that inform my reading of this book is um, my current work with uh, preparing novice teachers through Teach for America and working with school administrators where I try to press on them some of the uh, key issues that relate to free speech in schools and, um, and other legal and social expectations that we have of practitioners in, in the field of education. Um, and I'd also mention that I'm serving currently as the chair of the Committee on Open Expression at the University of Pennsylvania. So definitely I'm uh, encountering a lot of these, um, these matters in the college context. But uh, today, focusing on this book, I'd like to basically just raise two points. One, a philosophical or principled point, and the other, a more practical point. So the first one. The book exposes the patchy and sometimes contradicting foundations on which we rest our expectations of schools in the domain of educating for democracy very broadly beyond free speech. Schools are expected to reflect and model democratic principles such as free speech, but given that they are working with children and youth, they are also expected to control uh, their students' behaviors in ways that would readily be recognized as unconstitutional in other contexts, right? So we have this conflicting demand, which is basically the starting point, I think, for a lot of the litigation. 
uh, that the book discusses. In various ways, we expect schools to operate in less than fully democratic ways, we being society or sometimes administrators, the way they see their, their jobs, and sometimes our actual um, legal practices, such as compulsory attendance laws, right? This would not be acceptable if we talked about adults, but they are acceptable when we talk about children. If we focus for a moment on speech solely as an expression of the core values that one holds, which of course is just a subset of all speech, and when it comes to children and particularly uh, youth, it's probably just even a smaller subset, right? So we have a lot of what would be called worthless speech, as you termed. Even if we think about speech only in the context of speech as expressing core values, schools are meant to reflect the reality of value pluralism in society, and thus to allow for a variety of views to be heard and considered. And this is not only to preserve rights, but also to sustain the school as a microcosm of a vibrant public sphere. And that was the key um, uh, message, I think, coming from Tinker. On the other hand, if we think about schools as training grounds for democracy, rather than as a microcosm of democracy, then we more readily accept the need to limit, redirect, and even silence speech. We may reasonably expect that, that schools more strongly guide and mold students, including limiting their speech rights and other rights, if we think that students are further away from being ready to take on their civic roles. So our view of schools as democratic microcosms on the one hand or as training ground for democracy on the other depends in turn on our views and of course most importantly the court's views of children and youth. Are they mini adults who should practice their civic roles in as realistic a setting as possible? Or conversely, are they, and I quote, barbarians who need to be tamed and trained so that they can fit into our hard-won and established social order? This book offers a framework for reforming current legal approaches or, or pushing them in a certain direction and informing practice in a way that expands students' speech rights. And in this sense, it is firmly placed in the former camp, the camp that sees children as junior citizens and schools as reflection of the democratic public sphere. And this is very close to the Deweyan view, which has a long history, of course, in American public schools. And it's obviously a very worthy and well-established one, but it is worth noting that both in the theory and in the practice of education, this view uh, pretty much is considered to have lost to the other view, right? So it seems to be peripheral to the more central vision as we see in the court's decision and in the examples of practice that Professor Ross suggested and that I want to uh, uh, present an even more uh, extreme version of uh, right now. So this leads me to my second comment. This was the theoretical one. Now I have a more practical um, uh, comment about the book. In the field of practice, the speech rights of students are violated more often than is justified, or if we take as seriously as we should both the letter and the spirit of Tinker and of this book, more than is legally justified. If indeed schools have, and I quote, a uniquely important role in training young people to assume the mantle of citizenship, 
It is crucial that not only as scholars and protectors of the law, but also as citizens, we train our gaze at the more common practices in contemporary schools that some of us, uh, even as the Lord's Prayer is not regularly recited in public schools anymore, it is in some parts of the country, um, but, but not as commonly as in the past. But still, there are many newer uh, practices in schools that we should be aware of and concerned about to the extent that we care as we should about uh, student speech rights. So. Many schools today are taking a route that circumvents the entire debate we're having today by policing student speech to the extent that it doesn't exist within the school walls. The discussion of student speech rights in this important book rests on the existence of, spe of a speech act. A student speaks or holds a banner, a practitioner responds, maybe suspending them, and then the court needs to decide whether the, the fact whether in fact the speech act should have been protected, taking into account both the content of the speech, as we've seen post Tinker, and the context in which the speech took place, whether within the school or sometimes outside of school, as we heard. It was clear to me as I read this account of the development of the court's view of student speech rights that the more expansive interpretation, which I too view as essential to sustaining democratic values, principles, and practices in American society, cannot easily be realized in today's education policy environment. Most centrally, I'm concerned by the question, to what extent can the act of speech itself be protected in schools? To what extent can, you, can we defend students' rights to speak independent of the content of their speech? In a growing number of contemporary schools, and I've been doing research on this for the past two years, mostly uh, uh, in Philadelphia, um, in a growing number of schools, especially those serving low-income and minority students, students spend days, weeks, and months without ever being allowed to use their voices. Classroom activity is paced and times, timed with the teacher at the center of the activity, and the students expected to follow her lead and respond only when spoken to, and only with the response that is written in the teacher's guide. In the rare cases in which discussion is permitted, it is focused on a question of limited breadth, and usually there is a timer on the teacher's PowerPoint, and it is set most commonly to 45 seconds. It goes up to three minutes, and you get a very limited question, such as, how would you solve this equation? Or sometimes, what would you, that's, that's my favorite example, what would you do if you were Malcolm X? And you get two minutes to discuss with your friends. It's a guided discussion. And then, thing, it's over. And we are back to listening to the teacher. I've seen also um, uh, numerous cases of compelled speech in these contexts, particularly when students are using, when, sorry, teachers are using um, calls or chants to draw the students' attention and to make sure that they are focusing. So, for example, uh, the teacher would call smart, and all the students would have to respond scholars, and or whatever it might be, right? First amendment, right? So you, you would get some kind of call and response. If you don't participate in the response, even if you were sitting quietly, not being disruptive, listening to the teacher, but you didn't uh, respond to the chant, you will be reprimanded, usually with detention and... Um, 
uh, after four times with suspension. Outside these uh, um, compelled speech and outside the debates that I just uh, described to you, the rest of the school day is silent, including the hallways and most mo notably and depressingly for me, the lunchroom. Speaking to the person next to you at lunch is a privilege that has to be earned, and weeks can pass in which whole schools, kindergarten to 12th grade, are required to have silent lunches. Students march the hallways single file with one hand covering their mouth so that they remember not to speak. The use of one's voice, including whispering, laughing, and again, quite depressingly, sighing. This is considered to be a violation of uh, school behavior code, and it's met with an automatic punitive response. The reasoning behind this practice is the reasonable belief that students must attain a strong level of academic performance in order to succeed in life in different domains, including as citizens. And also the less reasonable belief that this can only be achieved if they are monitored and limited to these extreme extents. And there is one sentence in the book I want to read to you that shows the courts um, aligning with this view. Judges, this is in relation to the Morse case, the Bong hits for Jesus case. Judges have read the court's anxiety post-Morse about violence and subpar learning environments as to justify restricting civil liberties where schools are failing, right? So where we have uh, uh, lower performing schools, we have a stronger reasoning or supposed justification to limit students' um, free speech rights and other rights. The village tyrant is a powerful metaphor for those who subvert, undermine, or silence students' speech rights. And as we see throughout this book, their tyranny is expressed in their efforts to suppress speech, most notably by defining various speech acts as unacceptable, uh, or on the other hand, useful speech as required, right, within the context of a school. I would encourage those of us who care about student speech rights to consider also those increasingly common practices, which may be harder to address within our current legal framework, but which nonetheless stand in the way of a democratic education for citizenship and would clearly not be supported by a learning liberty framework that we just heard about from Professor Ross. To be clear, I wholeheartedly agree that basic academic skills and equal educational opportunity are essential to a functioning democracy for reasons that I'll not elaborate here. It is vital though that we recognize that like reading or math, citizenship too is learned by doing. And its skills will not evolve as a side effect of maturity or of academic attainment. Practicing the skills of being a citizen is essential for a, for a democracy which aims to sustain a vibrant public sphere informed by key democratic principles. Creating and sustaining school environments that support this gradual, intentional development of these skills requires focus on the protection of democratic school environments, environments in which student free speech and other basic rights are properly recognized and celebrated. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Um, you know, the Cato Institute uh, really depends on the First Amendment in a lot of ways. It's part of our strategy right from the beginning. Uh, it was always part of Cato's kind of outsider status. We were advocating ideas from in 85 or 95 and so on that really uh, hadn't gained traction in some ways. So we wanted to get people who were the dominant views to come here and debate us. So the First Amendment was essential to our idea of how we became part of the national conversation. But we always wanted to make sure that things we had, that the Cato position was enunciated, so it was defended. And today, uh, Professor Ross, I thought of it setting up this panel, would be part of the Cato position, or maybe all of the Cato uh, advocates, uh, uh, for our, the libertarian position on this. But we also do education here, and this has an education nexus. So I thought to include my colleague, Neil McCluskey, who does education here at Cato. Neil is, in fact, the director of the Cato Center for Educational Freedom. Prior to arriving at Cato, he served in the U.S. Army, taught high school English, and maybe he'll have some stories from that time for us, and was a, a freelance reporter covering municipal government and education in suburban New Jersey. Um, more, before becoming the director of the center, he was a policy analyst at the Center for Education Reform. He's the author of Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education. And his writings have appeared in all the leading publications. He's been on C-SPAN before, on CNN, Fox, and numerous radio programs. He holds an undergraduate degree from Georgetown, where he double majored in government and English, has a master's degree in political science from Rutgers University, and a PhD in public policy from George Mason. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. Thank you all uh, very much, and especially Professor Ross, thank you for writing this book. Uh, I think, you know, doing education policy all the time, that threats to basic rights in public schools is not a subject that gets nearly enough attention. All sorts of sort of uh, questions about what we teach, how we teach it, how uh, kids interact, those have all sort of been pushed aside with an obsession over test scores. Everything is, what is the test scores? What's the test scores? By the way, what are the test scores? And these are topics that we absolutely need to talk about. Now, I think there may be some collusion between uh, people who run schools and the, the uh, public transportation system in D.C. trying to keep people away from today's event by closing down conveniently the metro, but we'll see. Um, Within the book, I especially appreciate the discussion of dangerous federal overreach. I've done some work on the federal role in education, but the, especially the anti-bullying 2010 Dear Colleague letter, and somebody in the audience over there actually asked me about this before the event, so I, I hope you can talk about Dear Colleague letters. Uh, but it was particularly striking that you say it only mentioned the First Amendment in a footnote, and only once. And it seems that that probably ought to come up a little more often when we're giving directions for schools about how you deal with people's speech. The First Amendment shouldn't get one mention in a footnote. I do, though, have one particularly huge objection to something you wrote in the book, which is on page 273, and I want to quote it exactly. Quote, conservative groups, including the Cato Institute, dot, 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 unquote. Uh, you, uh, in your book, you talk about fighting words, which is a kind of thing, uh, speech that's not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, Cato is libertarian, not conservative. And I think that that falls under fighting words. Um, we're, we're not going to call the police in this case, but, but it's an important distinction. I had 
not met any of you wonderful people at that point in my life. <laughs> Fight averted. Um, I think it's absolutely right that public schools, though, as government entities, are often way too inclined to curb basic expression rights. I think that that is very clear in this book. If you're not clear on that already, read the book. You will be. Um, but we also, I think, have to be clear about two things, and these are, these are concerns I have about the book. One, public schools are often, as, and as I think Professor Ben Porath talked about, they're not actually often thought of as sort of training places for us to work out our differences. Or as you say, places, I thought this was a great quote, learning liberty by living it. I think that people tend to not look at schools that way. This is why this topic, I think, doesn't come up that much. Um, and second, it concerns me the use of the term democracy. And it's not just in your book. It's throughout any education fight or any education discussion or debate. And I'll get into a little bit more about why I think the use of the term is problematic. Uh, for the first point, though, I think that if you even read the major advocates of public schooling sort of historically, they weren't all that interested in, again, learning liberty by living it as something that the schools were primarily about. They were more about shaping people, I think, from above. So uh, Benjamin Rush is a pretty well-known founding father, big in Philadelphia, big in Pennsylvania. He was really an early advocate of, of widespread public schooling. And he said he should create a public schooling system that would, quote, render the mass of the people more homogeneous and thereby fit them more easily for uniform and peaceable government. And he talked about teaching, sort of inculcating common morals. So it wasn't really about people sort of themselves getting together talking about their differences. It was more, we'll take sort of an elite notion of what a proper citizen is, make people sort of identical, and we won't have problems when they're older and they're able to have liberty. Horace Mann, often called the father of the public schools or the common schools or the godfather of the common schools, no matter what name you give him, he was probably the leading advocate for, for public schooling in the 1830s, 1840s. And he talked about public schooling not really, again, about bringing in diverse people to work out their differences and to talk about what made them different, but making them sort of similar, sort of, uh, you know, people who held the same sort of elite views that he did. He talked about diffusing general intelligence too, but it was really about inculcating common morality, and it was a common morality that I think he hoped was held by people a lot like him. Um, if you go, uh, we'll go just to the, the, the progressive era, so the turn of the 20th century, just as one more example, Elwood Coverley was a very well-known uh, public schooling thinker and advocate. Uh, and Again, a lot, he and a lot of people who were like him didn't necessarily see the schools as a place where you learn liberty. In fact, he said, quote, we should give up the exceedingly democratic idea that all are equal and that our society is devoid of classes. The employee tends to remain an employee. The wage earner tends to remain a wage earner. And this was the period of using IQ tests to decide, well, your future is in a factory and maybe for a small percent your future is in college. And this, again, so it wasn't really oriented toward our public schools or where we learn to be citizens who have equal rights with everyone else and we, we work out our differences ourselves. Uh, certainly, uh, some public schooling advocates did want that. And, we, and Professor Ben Porth already talked about John Dewey. He was much more in this mold of we have schools where kids would come together from different backgrounds and they'd work on sort of projects together and they would learn to live together. And it's sort of a different view than this kind of top-down notion that I think was more a driver of public schooling. 
this idea that we should sort of shape people in, in a way to be kind of uniform. And again, the discussion, it seems to me, of even those goals today has been you know, fifth or sixth or seventh or nine hundredth priority next to test scores, test scores, test scores. That, I think, is what in many cases we have reduced education to being. Um, then just talk a little bit about the term democracy, and this comes up a lot for me, and I think it's very important how we use it. And it's often sort of used interchangeably to mean a lot of things. It can mean representative government to some people. It can be kind of a, a leveling of people. It can People can say it as uh, synonymous with individual liberty. Sometimes for people it means majority rule. Often it means just in some way public control or public rule. And this latter notion, I think, kind of drives a common belief when we get beyond the test scores, that public schools should basically respond to whatever the community, however you define that community, wants. Usually it's whoever is being represented by that school board. And that leads to a fundamental clash about what the schools do, the individual rights versus the community values. A lot of this, you know, sociologists and other people say education is about social reproduction. So the community says this is how we shape students to be part of our community, our society. And that means they have to share our norms and values and not do things that concern us. I think you can see that most clearly in sort of Morse v. Frederick. It may be because nobody ever forgets bong hits for Jesus. Um, so you remember that case. There's another, you go back to colonial eras, another law no one's ever heard of, but I think they never forget after I tell them. They say the first law for public schools uh, was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. So if you can get Jesus or Satan in the name of a law or in a court case, people remember it. In any event, I think ultimately there, there's a, a fundamental problem, especially if we talk about democratic control, this idea that we should have some sort of public control. It's inherently conflictual. The conflicts cannot be escaped. Um, and now I'm going to do sort of a shameless plug. Well, not really that shameless. But we run something called the Public Schooling Battle Map. And I think it's about to go up behind me. I never rely on my own ability to operate anything. There we go. So the public schooling battle map, the reason it's here is, is it, it's supposed to sort of illustrate to people how many sort of conflicts we have in public schools. There, this, this doesn't include about, well, how do you teach multiplication? Or, you know, what's the right day to start the school year? What hour do we start the school day? This is about values and identity-based conflicts that we have in public schools. And the reason it tends to be inherently conflictual is that you have diverse people. They're, they're uh, ideologically diverse, linguistically diverse, ethnically diverse, religiously diverse, but they are all ultimately supporting one system. And we're trying to get the system to, to, to treat them or to educate them all. But one system can't teach everything that everybody wants. And so you can see this, it, it, it can be deceptive just to look at it. So there are actually way more conflicts than you see here because a lot of those little pins bury other pins. But if you were to pull out, you'd also, it would look less uh, intense than you think. There are a lot of places where nobody lives, for instance, no, no markers there. But there, there are a lot of places where there are people live, you don't see one of these. And as you talked about in the book, you know, what makes it to, to courts, and often what makes it into the media, is not every conflict that we have. Probably it's a tip of the iceberg. So this may just be the tip of the iceberg. 
But the point here is to illustrate that we're constantly having conflicts over all sorts of issues. And I think the best illustration maybe is if you think of library books. And on uh, page 101 of Professor Ross's book, she notes that schools can choose to buy any book they want or not buy any book they want um, for whatever reason. But if you get into the removal of a book, you say that a parent says, well, I don't think that this book is appropriate in the middle school library, or I don't think this should be on my child's reading list, that becomes a constitutional issue of, is this government censorship if you remove it? Well, you can see the problems. Should the government be able to favor speech for whatever reason it wants? So it deems this book is worthy of having kids read it or putting it in the library. This book over here, this speech over here is not worthy of being in the library. Um, and that is inherently conflictual. And so we have on the map, just to illustrate the incredible power of the map and user friendliness, there we go, um, is these are all the book banning reading material conflicts we have. Again, probably tip of the iceberg, but there are about 220 of these. And this is only, this is collected over maybe 10 years. Uh, we started in 2005, some of them reached farther back, but it's just things that I, we see in the news and we pull out here. But that's inherently conflictual, 220 of these. Um, is it unjust, ultimately? You compel support for those who would not choose to pay for, say, uh, Robert Cormier's The Chocolate War. You may not have read it, but that's one of the most challenged books. Or what about people who say, I don't think I should pay for, or I don't think my children should have to read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Well, how do you balance it with the people say, yes, these are very valuable books to read. Government, one way or another, is making the decision what to read or what not to read. Uh, we could also talk about human origins. Everybody knows creation versus evolution, but inherently, there is a problem. It leads to inequality. So if you teach evolution alone, automatically creationists feel like they're second-class citizens. And you might even say it's religious discrimination, that they can't have their viewpoint in there also. But you add creationism, and you're injecting religion, which is certainly something that we don't want government to do. So you can't treat all these people equally. Um, also, I think a couple more just small critiques. Well, it's crucially important to protect speech. I, and, and I think Professor Ben Porath talked about this a little, so I won't go into it too much. But I think there is a good argument, especially for teachers, people you know, in the classroom every day for saying, you've got to have a lot of discipline, even if it means people's speech goes away. Because it can be very difficult to teach what you need to teach to run a classroom if you don't have that. And even if someone is saying something that is perfectly legitimate viewpoint, you can't have your 45 minutes devolve into a debate about something when you need to cover other material, both for educational purposes and, of course, for testing purposes. You've always got to cover other material. Um, and then finally, I think that there's something important about shared norms and beliefs. Uh, I think research by James Coleman and others have shown that private schools, especially religious schools, may in fact outperform public schools because ultimately everyone who goes to that school accepts the school's norms and values, and that creates sort of cohesion. You don't have to have, as we see in, in public schools, sort of rule by law and regulation, and often a muddling through, as you illustrate very well in the book, where you're not really sure what to do. How do we decide on what policy to have or how to treat this student when we know it'll make some people in the community angry and others won't like what I do if I don't punish this student? In private schooling, Everybody, you agree basically what the handbook says, and that enables the school to run much more coherently and cohesively, and it may be it leads to better academic outcomes. I don't want to say that I think that this is slam dunk research, but there is some research to show this.
Um, and I think that given the inherent conflict of public schooling, the only way to truly treat people equally and protect them from government incursions on their rights, speech rights, religious rights, et cetera, is educational freedom. Ultimately, attach money to students, not to specific schools, and give educators freedom to start the kinds of schools they want, with the policies they want, with the curriculum they want, and let those people freely interact. And so somebody who wants maximum expression rights in the school can choose a school like that. Somebody who says, no, I want sort of the no excuses, uh, tough uh, discipline, you know, maybe not even speaking in the cafeteria kind of uh, atmosphere, they can choose that as well. And then if you're not happy, if you say, I chose a school that doesn't have a strict anti-bullying policy because I want maximum freedom, but my child is getting bullied to the point I can't tolerate it, you can also leave that school. And that's, as you point out in the book, that's a problem with public schools. As in a way, you're a captive audience. This gives you an ability to escape. Um, and you could choose schools for any other number of reasons, not just these policies. Um, so in that sort of case, government wouldn't decide on speech rights or religious rights or anything else. Parents would make those decisions and could even, as I said, go elsewhere if they're unhappy. So I think it's absolutely important, crucial, to understand the threats to freedom of speech and other freedoms and how to minimize them in public schools. And I think this book does an absolutely terrific job of talking about those issues, diving into them, and talking about how to resolve them. I especially like your chart. Um, which I'm going to put up in my office for anyone who comes says stuff I don't like. Um, but I think it's even more important ultimately to move to a system in which those kinds of threats can be escaped by the people that the education system is supposed to serve. Thank you. Uh, Neil's comment about the distinction between conservatives and libertarians reminded me of my old friend Walter Burns' book, Freedom, Virtue, and the First Amendment, uh, which goes back to the 1950s. Uh, you might read it. You will not get the uh, sense that it is a libertarian book. It is indeed a very different uh, kind of approach to the First Amendment that, that you can call conservative. That said, I think it might be worth emphasizing at this moment that most of the conservatives, liberals, or almost all the conservatives, liberals, and indeed libertarians that I know think New York Times versus Sullivan was rightly decided which is to say that they don't believe that public figures should have heightened protection against libel. And they're, most of them in all three camps, I think, are frankly appalled to hear uh, successful politicians suggest otherwise. And on that note, we shall go to our questions and answers. Uh, please wait. raise your hand. Please wait to be called upon. Uh, wait for the microphone so we can project this out through the world. And, you know, announce your name and affiliation unless you think you have reasons to want to remain anonymous, which I don't think anyone really does. And above all, please keep your comments in the form of a question, if possible. This gentleman here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Brett Hines, and I'm with American University. Uh, when I went to high school, I went to a private Catholic high school, so the debates around free speech there don't quite match the same. But I was wondering if a personal experience that I've had with uh, censorship by administration, how that would play out in public schools. Um, I was the editor of the school newspaper's op-ed section, and I was uh, planning on publishing an editorial opposing the administration's position that it had tacitly taken on homosexuality. And they demanded that they review the article before publishing it. Uh, and ultimately, they 
took several months with the review until I left the school, coincidentally. Um, but I suppose my question is that when it comes to school-sponsored speech, how w does the administration have the ability to review what students want to say in something like a school newspaper in a public school? Absolutely. Uh, in a public school, they would have, um, they can say, we're reviewing everything before it comes out. They can censor it by eliminating the article altogether, by forcing you to rewrite it, by taking parts out. And in fact, the case that created this doctrine was about a school newspaper that wanted to run um, actual news stories, not opinion pieces, about teenage pregnancy in the school and about the impact of divorce on students. And the principal uh, essentially got rid of two whole pages of the newspaper because he wanted to get rid of those two articles at the last minute, and the court said that was okay, but it went further. It didn't limit its holding to school newspapers. Um, so while yours was labeled an opinion piece, they might say that either this was not a topic that was appropriate for a school-sponsored newspaper, or that the viewpoint was so provocative within the community that they uh, now, they, you know, I said earlier they can't really say they're going to censor it because it's controversial, but that it might be too difficult for some of the younger students to handle. Um, they would find some pedagogical reason. Um, what, where schools go wrong is that they've gotten sort of lazy. They often don't even bother to come up with a reason. They just say, can't publish it. Then they'll lose. But if they try, they can usually come up with something. That's the sad news. I'm actually going um, the end of this week to talk to the annual meeting of the uh, Columbia Scholastic Journalism Association, which is the meeting of all of the high school students who run student publications and their advisors. So I'll probably have some more stories after that meeting. Uh, the woman in the center in the back row. So rude being a moderator. You just point at people. <laughs> you don't know their names. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm also from American University. Um, my question for you guys is, uh, while this does seem to be a general problem across the United States, do you think it should be addressed nationally or in individual communities? That's a terrific question. Um, as Neil indicated, local control is a very important part of our educational system, elected school boards, local superintendents, um, and as far as I'm able to grasp the newly crafted law that replaced No Child Left Behind, the federal government is stepping back from um, giving the kind of guidance they've been giving for the last 10 years. Um, but the constitutional law is federal law. Uh, so we really have to have an interplay between an understanding of First Amendment law interpreted by federal courts and what communities do on the ground. And, and one of the recommendations I make uh, in my book is that um, just because the First Amendment allows schools to engage in certain kinds of censorship or um, in, to place certain inhibitions on student speech, doesn't mean that school districts have to use those powers. So one thing that people who believe in a more um, a model of education that emphasizes learning how to be citizens in an active way um, might do is 
run for school board or go and tell the school board, um, we would like to be a community in which the school doesn't limit student speech that isn't disruptive, even though you have the power to do that. We'd like to send a different message in this environment. Um, usually, the people who talk up about speech in the local community are those who would like more censorship rather than less until there's an incident. And once there's a censorship incident, quite understandably, principals and school boards tend to dig in their heels rather than to reconsider their policies. So I suggest this is a good conversation to have before a play has been canceled or um, some other issue has arisen. Other questions? Uh, down here to the right, we'll get both of these gentlemen. Hi, uh, Michael Enders, Washington, D.C. I'm wondering if any of the courts have considered the possibility that educators would be doing well to solicit provocative speech rather than just allow it. Ah. I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I've never seen a court say it, and I don't know. Have you ever seen a principal say it? Well, I've seen, uh, I've seen some administrators who profess to encourage to encourage controversial speech. There is actually a very interesting study that um, was published in a book called Controversy in the Classroom. Um, Hess and McAvoy are the two authors. And they actually show there um, a set of cases in which um, classroom teachers are using controversial topics and controversial opinions as pedagogical um, vehicles for uh, developing civic capacity or for uh, sometimes writing, learning how to mm -hmm. write, or for speech and debate purposes, but in the regular classroom, not at the club, right? Mm -hmm. And basically, they show that Generally speaking, I mean, this is a very large study that they did over five years with thousands of students that they later also followed up with after they graduated to see the extent in which the extent to which they um, they remain active citizens, right? To the extent to which they vote or participate in other ways, and they do show that when you encourage and also model controversial speech in the classroom. For example, when you live in a community where most people, uh, for example, are very strong advocates of the Second Amendment, and you come in, even if it's not your view as a teacher, right? But you come in and you say, here is why we should have very strict gun control regulations, or the opposite, right? Then basically your capacity to encourage students to develop critical thinking skills and respectful debate skills and all, all of these other um, uh, capacities that allow you to be a good, active, efficacious citizens are really strengthened by this, right? So you do see it in practice from teachers and administrators. I won't say that this is the mainstream. Yeah, I would just add that uh, I think that schools and educators tend to avoid controversial issues quite apart from the First Amendment question because often the school, or sometimes the school has a, again, diverse 
community that it's working with, and they're just trying to avoid conflicts that might give them a hard time. Uh, and there was work by two political science, Berkman and Plutzer, um, uh, and it came out a few years ago now. They've done subsequent work, but that surveyed biology teachers, and they found that about 60-some percent of biology teachers soft-pedal evolution or don't teach it at all, mainly because they're trying, or they think, mainly because they're just trying to avoid getting anybody angry. So a lot of avoiding controversy isn't even about the First Amendment. It's, it makes your life easier not to aggravate people. Well, teachers can also lose their jobs if parents get angry enough. And, the, yeah, and even, even if they have tenure, and if they stray from the viewpoint in the curriculum that the school board has chosen, they can get in a lot of trouble. Gentleman over there. David Sowelson. Uh, some years ago, I worked for the Michigan State Legislature, and I worked on a bill to protect the rights of public school, school students in uh, pu publishing newspapers. Um, there are plenty of sources of rights for students besides the US Constitution. Each state has its own constitution, and each state can pass statewide laws. So I'd like to know, has that happened? Have state courts relied on state constitutions to protect students' rights? Have states passed statutes protecting students' rights to free speech? Terrific question. Um, yes, a number of states have enacted higher protections for students' speech rights than are currently found in the federal doctrine from the courts. Um, California basically says the material disruption standard applies to every kind of student speech in K through 12, uh, regardless of the Supreme Court precedents. And they also, a few years ago, passed a law protecting the advisors to high school publications. Uh, going back to your question about your op-ed piece, if an advisor in California fights to protect the rights of the student journalists, the statute says they can't be discharged for that. Um, and there are a number of organizations that are actively working to try to get more states to pass more protective laws for student journalists. Um, a number of states came close to doing it, but experienced vetoes um, from governors. Uh, one case involved students in a suburb of Chicago at a very good high school with an award-winning newspaper who discovered that their um, that staff of the school district had gone on junkets, and they dug out the um, travel receipts and showed they stayed you know, more days in the hotel than the meeting went on and things like that and they weren't allowed to publish it in the school newspaper, but the Chicago Tribune found it met all of the standards for journalist investigations and published it. <laughs> and after that, the Illinois legislature passed a student rights uh, statute to cover student journalists, and the governor vetoed it. Pretty shameful. Hmm. But, but they're definitely, that is another place going back to the, is this a local or a national problem? It's both. Gentleman right here. Thank you, Lars Liebeler, um, asking this question in my capacity as a high school basketball coach at a public school in Fairfax <laughs> County. Uh, I'm wondering whether your scholarship uh, touches on this issue. I've been following a case that I think is progressing now. There's a, a football coach in the state of Washington who 
uh, over the course of his uh, career had at the end of games gone to the center of the field and prayed by himself, um, which apparently didn't raise a problem. Some of the kids on the team then said, Coach, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm praying. He said, can we join you? Of course, it's a free country, which people, whenever they say that, that's always wrong, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so as, the, as more and more people joined him for the prayer, he then was suspended, and I think that case is ongoing. I'm wondering whether any of your scholarship and research uh, sort of touches on that issue. It seems like it only became a problem when the students came voluntarily to pray with him. Yes. The last chapter of my book um, focuses in, in large part on um, religious expression by students. And one of the problems in this area is that Next to the, uh, the doctrine governing student speech, which many judges sort of throw up their hands and say, this is just too confusing for me, I don't know how to use it, which you know they do preside over antitrust and other very difficult cases, um, but trying to make it clearer. Um, next to that, the condition of the establishment clause is an enormous disarray because the Supreme Court has basically not relied on a certain old set of doctrine and hasn't really replaced it with anything else. So individual justices have their own approaches, but the lower courts don't have much guidance. And so teachers and principals are confused about what amounts to an establishment clause violation. How does this relate to free speech for students? Um, They too often think that if students express religious views, like praying over the sandwich I brought from home, not even trying to get other students to join in, um, that the school will be accused of an Establishment Clause violation for allowing this to take place. That is clearly not true. The Supreme Court has repeatedly said that students have the right to pray in school, again, as long as they're not disrupting class, um, and to express through speech, their religious viewpoints to each other. Um, The problem is when you have a teacher encouraging people, then we have a question about, is participation really voluntary? So the law is pretty clear. This should be from the students themselves. Very different if a group of students say, you know, we've noticed the coach has been praying in the middle of the field, and we'd like to do that too. Do they do it separately? Do they join the coach? When the coach says, team members whose lives I'm pretty much in charge of a lot of the time, and I'm very important authority figure to you, you want to join me, I think that's a closer question. And certainly if he said, we are going to do this as a team, that's forbidden. Um, Gentlemen in the center, and we'll have a couple more and have to wrap up. Um, Jacob Marks, American University. Um, I have kind of a quick scenario question for you. If a teacher is hospitalized due to an incident at a high school and is assaulted in the process, and that's how she ends up in the hospital, and she posts on Facebook that she ends up in the hospital and gets fired because of it, is that violating her First Amendment right? I'm sorry. The teacher? Sorry, I wasn't really clear. The teacher was assaulted in an incident at the school and was hospitalized because of it. 
while in the hospital, she was she posted on a social media site that she was in the hospital. Can she be fired for that? Hmm. Um, it depends. Part the law will be different depending where she lives, because the appellate courts are not entirely in agreement. Um, but there are except there are some limits to what public employees, including teachers, can say um, about their work. And so a lot would depend on whether this was considered a matter of public concern or not. And hypothetically, um, you know, if she were, let's say, attacked by a student or by the school principal, that probably, to me, would seem like a matter of public concern. But if it was something else then she probably could be. But it's very hard to say without knowing both more and where this took place. Gentleman right here will be, have to be our last question. Dr. McCluskey, to your point, isn't this whole issue really more not about uh, uh, free expression but, but property rights? Isn't public property the original sin in this whole debate where if you, you, know, if you didn't have public property, public school, the government wouldn't be in the position to be an arbiter of speech? Well, I've never put it that way. Um, and I'm not an expert on property law or anything like that. I do think that that is certainly a, a root problem. If the government weren't providing the schools, then most of these issues would go away. Now, there are a lot of arguments for why government provides schools that you could certainly have. Um, I think what's important uh, is we do need to look, I think, somewhat below the conflicts themselves and say, well, what may be causing us to have all these conflicts? The reality is, I hope we move to school choice. We are moving to school choice uh, to some extent, and that needs means private schools, because even charter schools understand are public schools, so they're still bound by all this. But... And, and while we've made great progress, we're nowhere near most people going to private schools. So these are very real issues that are going to probably have to be dealt with until we can reach the ideal where everybody is going, uh, what I think is the ideal, to a private school. Because then you and the educators essentially agree on what the rules are going to be. And that's the best way to balance lots of competing goods. One, where people just put different values on different things, um, but also where some things can't coexist together. So you can't have a, a school that's both non-religious and that teaches, say, religious doctrine, which a lot of people want. But in terms of whether or not it's a public property issue, I, at least I've never framed it that way. When uh, Professor Ross and I met in January when she was on a panel here, uh, at one point she said to me, you know, outside the First Amendment, I disagree with a lot of things Cato advocates. Now, of course, uh, I was perplexed because having all the answers, I'm always kind of perplexed when people disagree with me. But uh, there's a point here that's important. We don't disagree about the First Amendment, the importance of the First Amendment, uh, despite the fact that we agree, disagree about many policy issues. And in fact, at a time, I think that's an important thing to remember in a context like this, at a time when there's lots of polarization, lots of partisanship, and lots of uh, seemingly intractable conflicts. It's important that people across 
parties and across ideologies remain committed and unified to a strong First Amendment protections. And I, I think this book, Lessons in Censorships, How Schools and Courts Subvert uh, Students' First Amendment Rights, is an important contribution to building that kind of unity and to uh, making us appreciate the importance of the First Amendment. I'd like to thank Professor Ross for coming today, Professor Ben Parath for coming down on a potentially difficult day to be with us here, and my colleague Neil McCluskey, uh, for appearing on the panel. Most of all, on a rough day, uh, you must really care about the First Amendment to come out today, and I appreciate each one of you coming. Let's go have lunch and talk more about this. The lunch will be held on the second level of the at the George M. Yeager Conference Center, which is up the spiral staircase in the front of the building. Uh, restrooms on the second floor on your way to lunch. Look for the yellow wall, and you can purchase your own copy of Lessons in Censorship up there. Thanks very much.